You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 109 of a Life Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover. David will not be joining us today, and Connor will make it for the second and third segments. But for this week's episode, we are joined by Dr. Anna Goldfield from the APN's flagship show, The Dirt Podcast. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well and feeling very flattered that you called The Dirt the APN's flagship show. Gosh. Yeah, no, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I mean, at all of our monthly meetings for the APN and we go through monthly episode downloads, it's always the dirt in the, if not tens of thousands, then uh, Bruins is down there with like 5,000 a month. So it's always the dirt is what we aspire to be one day. If we ever get our act together, we're hoping to get to your guys' level of listenership. And also your guys' content is just phenomenal what you guys are able to cover. Yeah. I mean, thank you. Thank you so much. It is really fun to get to talk about something new every week, or at least as close to every week as we can uh, manage with our with our day jobs. Absolutely. So we really wanted to get you and we will have uh, Amber on later mm-hmm. on, just really kind of have our listeners get to know you guys, which you guys both propelled into anthropology and what led to the dirt. So, I mean, just kind of kicking us off, you know, what first got you interested in anthropology to begin with? I mean, I think it was history first that I really got interested in. I've always been really into the past and really curious about how people lived and and how it was different from how I lived and how the world was different and how technologies were different. The, the, The stuff, like the actual physical stuff, the development of technologies and the creation of art and the actual physical remnants of the past have always really interested me. But I didn't really realize that for a long time. Um, as a kid, I was super into the Middle Ages. I still am. I'm still into, you know, castles and swords and sort of the the very sort of pop culturified Middle Ages. I even, and I've said this on the dirt, and I will continue to say it because I deserve to be roasted for this, but I had a, a medieval castle themed bat mitzvah. And... In context and in retrospect, the medieval period for Jews was a rough time in Europe. And so the irony is not lost on me. But when I went to undergrad, I started as a classics major. I really, really loved the Greek and Latin classes that I was fortunate enough to take in high school. And I went to Bryn Mawr College, which is a small liberal arts women's college just outside of Philadelphia. And I started in the classics program and I was like, I'm going to do Latin and Greek and learn about the ancient world. And then about a semester and a half in, I realized that while the languages were really interesting, what I was really, really captivated by was the lives of people. And and this was also because I had also taken an archaeology class. I took sort of intro to archaeology 101 or 100, whatever it was. And I realized like, oh, okay, the languages interested me because it was kind of a a lens into the lives. And I didn't have access to, as a high school student, I didn't have access to archaeology or anthropology classes. I was doing Greek and Latin, but not learning the wider context of the ancient world in which those languages were spoken. And so 
that sort of propelled me into archaeology. And and I've really spent my career as an archaeologist for a really long time, not knowing what I was doing and sort of blundering into the right place by accident. And so when I finished my undergraduate degree, I, I it's a degree in classical and Near Eastern archaeology, which essentially for me was an art history degree because I didn't take the opportunity to do fieldwork at that time. I, I went to, and studied abroad, but that didn't include fieldwork and really no aspect of sort of the practical parts of archaeology were ever dealt with. I didn't really learn how excavations work. I never, I didn't learn what a total station was. I didn't know how uh, I, to some extent, I learned how artifacts are studied and cataloged and illustrated. And that was a big part of my interest was illustrating artifacts, which is something that I still do. But I really don't think I got an archaeology education until graduate school. And so for grad school, I went to Boston University because I applied to three programs. And that's the one that I got into and sort of simplified things for me after undergrad. I, I mean, I took two years off after undergrad to sort of experience living in the real world and have a real job. Hated that. And so I went back to school. Doing? I worked at the front desk of a dorm at Drexel University, which is in Philly. Um, so I lived in I lived in West Philly and I was I was the person who like swiped entrance cards at the security desk in front of the dorm. But I also, I wasn't security. I was like the kind of liaison between facilities and like student resources and security. So I, it was not intellectually challenging at all. It wasn't a great fit for me. It was a job and, you know, I, it paid the rent. It allowed me to do fun things on the weekends, but I was not happy. And so I really wanted to go back to school and I really wanted to pursue archaeology. And so I went to Boston University intending to kind of get into, and because I had experience in sort of the classical Near Eastern world, I wanted to kind of continue that, but specifically look at I think at the time it was sort of the development of technologies and specifically like how different technologies working with different materials spread to different places. And somewhere along the way, I realized again that that wasn't the thing. And I found my way to zooarchaeology. So I really found my way to, to zoark, the, the analysis of, of faunal remains from archaeological sites in the field. So in my first year of graduate school, I met Dr. Paul Goldberg, who he's a professor. He's currently, I think he's now a professor emeritus at, at Boston University. But he basically invented micromorphology, which is like the, the study of site formation processes on a very, very small scale. The scale of, really the scale of sort of grains of sand. Micromorphology, essentially how you study that is that you take sections from, from a site, you encase them in plaster, you remove them. So you get a chunk of the, the profile of a site, you impregnate it with resin, and then you can cut it up and take thin sections of it, which you can then look at under a microscope. And you can get a very, very, very fine resolution view of all the layers of sediment, much more than you can just see with the naked eye. You can see whether there's layers of ash and whether there is, whether silt has blown in or whether clay has washed in due to water movement. So it's a really incredible way of getting at things that have happened at the site over millennia. 
And he was working at the site of La Ferracie in France, which is it's in the southwest Dordogne region of France. And he said, why don't you come along for the summer? Do some field work. You need the experience. And I had taken high school French. Uh, that was my only other non-English language. So that seemed like a reasonable idea. And it also wasn't, <laughs> I have very, um, very protective parents and it wasn't a part of the world that would make them excessively nervous. So, <laughs> so France seemed like a way to go. And so I ended up participating in field seasons at La Ferrisie for the next six years. And I got the chance to work with Dr. Harold Dibble, who is, he passed away a few years ago, but he was a phenomenal sort of force in the study of lithic technology and, and the Paleolithic in Europe. Um, so I worked on his team for, for several years. And over the course of that, realized that I was really, really interested in how ancient people ate, like supported themselves, how they subsisted. Right, right. I should mention La Ferrisie is a Neanderthal site. It's a really well-known, well-established Neanderthal site that was first excavated in the 20s. And then the World War has gotten in the way. And then it was excavated again in the, I want to say, 60s and 70s. And then again in the 2000s. And so I was a part of those last excavations and the intent of those excavations was to sort of sort out the stratigraphy, the the context of the previous excavations because they were disconnected and the site reports kind of didn't match up. So they were trying to sort of contextualize everything and, and figure out what the whole story of La Ferrisie was. So there were no longer any Neanderthals there, no, no remains there, at least that we found, but there had been several skeletons found uh, during the first excavations. So at La Ferrisie, I met Dr. Teresa Steele, who was the zooarchaeologist on site. I expressed interest in learning zooarchaeology because I realized that that was the simplest way for me to get at patterns of, of behavior related to food, because those are the things, if you're talking about a site that's you know, 60,000 or more years old, animal bones are the things that preserve best out of all the possible sort of food materials. There are other things that preserve. It's just, that was the thing I could see and touch and, and learn directly about. And so that was what I got really, really interested in. And so I started thinking about zooarchaeology and um, decided to do my dissertation on Neanderthal subsistence as it related to both the use of fire for cooking and the extinction of Neanderthals once Homo sapiens moved into Western Europe. So, I mean, that's really, and, and indeed I did. That is what I did my dissertation on. That's me. That's my whole trajectory. That's a lot. Like for those micro sections of site strata. Yeah, yeah. Like how many, like if like a regular, like let's say like a 20 centimeter deep, like just something like super shallow, sure. like how many thin sections are we talking about with just something like that? So, so what happens first is that the team sort of looks at it and tries to determine how many layers overall they think are present. And then often the thin sections will be taken based on specific areas that they want to look into. So especially the margins between layers, they want to make sure that in fact there is a change in the sediment or there's not just like a tiny layer of something else hiding that the naked eye can't see. But yeah, it can be dozens. It can be, I'm sure that some sites have hundreds. I guess it really just depends on the the depth of the section. But yeah, Paul Goldberg's pretty incredible because he essentially invented this sub-discipline. 
his name is just on every kind of seminal paper for every major site. So it was, it was great to get the chance to to work with him. And the man makes a mean apple cobbler. All right. That's a yeah. fun fact. I'll take he's that. Just, he's a great guy. I'm always amazed by geoarchaeologists. Like truly what they're able to do with dirt is like, Same. I think it's witchcraft. Like I don't, I don't get it, but it's just so cool for them to be able to look at strata and sediments and soils the way they do and like reconstruct the site's history. And I, and yeah. taking that to like the like microscopic level, the, the really, um, sections is like brings tons of depth. depth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you want to talk to a, a, a micro stratigraphic guy on your show, I, I have a friend and colleague who is, who does that. Oh, so. absolutely. That'd be fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I can, um, remind me and I will give you his contact. Info. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, Oh man, it's always been a dream of mine to be able to work on a Neanderthal site, like <laughs> going to Europe to work on something like that. So I totally lucked out. <laughs> I, I do realize right. how, how, what an absolute privilege that was. When you were getting your district, like your doctorate, cause you're not, mm-hmm. you know, very old. I think we're around the same age. <laughs> like the, the, I'm 36. <laughs> yeah. See, like not at all. Were those ideas of Neanderthals being like brutish and like, quote unquote primitive still pervasive by the time oh, yeah. you're writing your disc. Yeah. Yeah, because I would I would, you know, mention to my parents something that I was working on and my dad would crack a joke about, you know, a Neanderthal being a dum dum. And I would get un you know, probably unreasonably mad. But I was like, come on, I don't I don't go to your job and make fun of what you do. Fair. <laughs> but um yeah. No, I, I do think, and I think it, it's definitely changing, but I think it is taking a lot of time to sort of for the you know, understandably relatively obscure world of research into Neanderthals to sort of filter through to everyone. But I I do think that that Neanderthal renaissance is picking up speed. It seems to be. It seems that I see more and more news stories and more and more just sort of features about like Neanderthals were much more complex than originally, than we ever thought. It's like, well, okay. But, but I'm, you know, obviously the media tends to sensationalize things uh, for to some extent, I'm not mad about that, but a lot of times that it causes people to take research out of context. And so that is sort of where the other part of my career comes in. Absolutely. Now, are you in the camp that Neanderthals are like a, like Homo sapiens Neanderthalensis or like firmly like Homo Neanderthalensis? I think that that's kind of, <laughs> I think it's, for me personally, it's an issue of sort of biological semantics. Like if it's really important to someone to distinguish that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens were different in some way, if they want to make that taxonomic distinction, that's fine. That's great. If they want to connect Neanderthals to Homo sapiens by saying Homo sapiens Neanderthalensis, that's also fine because clearly it's it's murky. It's very wobbly because we know that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens interbred because modern humans living today, some portions of the population still have some Neanderthal DNA, a very small mm-hmm. percentage, but it's in there, which means that, you know, sex had to happen. That's mm-hmm. the only way DNA gets in there. And so we know that they were at least biologically compatible enough to do that, which means that by the biological or sort of the broadest biological definition of species, Neanderthals and humans were closely related enough to be kind of if not the same species, then maybe like a subspecies. I don't know. It gets it gets really dicey there. Um, but I just tend to call them both different flavors of human. 
because I like to think of them like when you say human, it implies a lot of things. The word human comes is a very loaded word. It comes with connotations of intelligence, with sophistication in terms of like technology and culture, with sort of innovation, but also with humanity, right? The giving someone the quality, the aspect of humanity and seeing a, a kinship between two people or two, you know, two, two species. And so to call Neanderthals human, I think gives them that humanity that, that we're seeing more and more that they had from evidence in the archaeological record. So that's when I get asked that question, I tend to get very flustered because I'm like, I don't know, because do you want me to be a biologist <laughs> or about it? Or do you want me to be like an anthropologist about it? So I, I try to answer both at the same time and end up just sort of getting myself into a a funk. But yeah, that's that's my answer is that they are both humans. Fair enough. That's a great answer. I like that answer a lot. Awesome. I've well, had to answer no- it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the first segment of episode 109. We'll be right back with Dr. Anna Goldfield. All right. We're back with Dr. Anna Goldfield for episode 109 of the Life and Ruins podcast. And we're about about to learn about the origins of the dirt podcast and something I've been super <laughs> fascinated about. We first learned about the dirt when we were coming up with a life in ruins and we were looking for titles for our podcast. And we oh, came no. up with a bunch. Did we like, you? Yes. Well, I mean, like you guys had it first for a long, longer period of time, clearly, but it was like, you know, all the clever ones we could come up with, they were like already taken. And so we were like, Oh, and so that's how we first learned of the dirt and how I started listening to you and Amber was, when we were doing the preliminary stuff for ruins, like what's the archaeology content out there? And yours was already a podcast that like, out of all the ones that we listened to, yours was the one that I personally connected with the most. Like I like that banter and the way that you guys run episodes. And so like I listened to a lot of you guys as inspiration for how do we oh, run thank you. ruins. So how did you first get into podcasting? I think to go all the way, all the way back to sort of acquiring the skill set is my history with music. So I play a couple different instruments. And in high school, as my senior project, I recorded an album of original songs. They're very goofy, very embarrassing now. So I learned how to record, how to edit in, I think it was Pro Tools at the time. Time out. Were they archaeology themed? No, 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 not at all. No, this was, this was still high school. It was just like, no, my feelings. Okay. Have you heard of Hangover Trench Naps, the stupid archaeology album that I made for my public archaeology class? Oh my God. No. It is super embarrassing, super bad. But me and Clo- me and David made a banger called uh, Clovis Paradise, and it's a parody of uh, Gangster's oh, yeah. Paradise. <laughs> That's amazing. Um. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt and like. No, that's okay. On. And that has reminded me that that I promised Flint Dibble, who is the son of Harold Dibble, um, and we're friends in real life and on Twitter. But I promised him on Twitter that if I reached two thousand Twitter followers, I would do some sort of parody or original song about archaeology. So that's a challenge to your listeners. Go go find me on Twitter and yeah, follow me, and I'll I'll do that. I promise. But. That meant that I knew how I already sort of had the the background skills to to edit audio stuff. So fast forward to 2017, I had just finished my PhD and I was on the job market, which is a nice way of saying unemployed. And I was living in California and with my partner and Amber came to visit me just 
as sort of a, so we, Amber and I met in undergrad. She was a year behind me. We took a lot of classes together. We worked in the same dining hall together. So we were very close friends in undergrad and we stayed close friends afterwards. And she had come to visit me in California. And during that visit, we sort of joked like, ah, we could start a podcast. And her original idea was that she would make me watch the film 10,000 BC and then just sort of I would get angry about it because it's a very bad movie. And then we realized that that wasn't really a sustainable model. But <laughs> a couple months after that, after the kind of that joke was getting kicked around. So I was on the job market. Amber had at that point left her graduate program at Berkeley and, and was also on the job market. And we, so we were both in this position of like lots of skills, no job, right? We were both like, you know, very intelligent, educated people who really had this drive to, to learn and to want to learn about the things that excite us, but really nowhere to, to put the, that energy and nowhere to put that, those skills. And so we actually started talking about, hey, what if we really did start a podcast? And so we did what I imagine that you guys did at first was we, we looked around at the available content and we talked a lot about what we wanted people to walk away from our show with, what we wanted the tone of our show to be, what we wanted sort of the mission of our show to be. And the things that we landed on sort of the, the strongest was, first of all, that there was a lot of archaeology content out there that was very by experts for experts. It was a lot of like really inside baseball stuff that if you were a new listener starting out with no archaeology background or maybe just a real interest in archaeology, you'd done a lot of reading or something like that, even then you wouldn't necessarily feel like you were listening to something that was accessible to you. You were listening to somebody talk about CRM and total stations and using a lot of jargon and not necessarily breaking down some of the bigger concepts that are sort of baked into an archaeological education. So if you have taken archaeology classes, there are some sort of foundational things that you learn. And then from that point on, you don't really have to relearn them. But for somebody coming in fresh, those concepts still need to be broken down. And so that was one of the things that we said, first of all, we want this show to be accessible to someone coming in with no background whatsoever. We want to use storytelling to accomplish a couple of things. One, to, to engage people. We like humans are wired to understand the world through narrative. We construct our own narratives. We're the protagonists of those narratives. And we understand other people's lives through narrative. And so to engage people, storytelling is, is sort of the best way to do that for us. And also to really kind of reintroduce people into the past. Because a lot of times, I think when people consider the past, they think of static images or moments or or eras, these things that seem very kind of distant and almost clinical. But these were, you know, any, any people living in the past were real people with lives and thoughts and emotions and the same kinds of fears or, or experiences that, that we might have. They, they felt excitement, they felt grief, they felt happiness, they felt you know, all, all these human emotions. And we wanted to emphasize that that was a part of life in the past as well. So just put, put humans back into the past. And so we planned for about three months and then 
recorded the first three episodes of The Dirt and released them on July 1st, 2018. And so we did... we. There was a lot of research into like the actual practical aspects of this. There's a lot of Googling of like how to import sound as MP3, you know, like all the little things. There's a lot of almost breaking down into hysterics because something wasn't working <laughs> and then it turned out like the thing wasn't plugged in the right, you know, it was like a lot of, a lot of that kind of stuff. But once we had all of those little issues ironed out, we recorded our first three episodes the sound is really bad. Like if you go listen to the dirt, by all means, listen to the first three episodes, but know that we were recording with tiny little dinky mics and we didn't really know what we were doing yet. We didn't have kind of the flow of the show down yet. Right. And I think we tell our audience, like, go back and listen to the first five by all means. But like those same things, like we didn't know what we were doing. We were yep. too much like having fanboy moments over the people we had on <laughs> rather than like engaging with them in a serious yeah. manner over their content. And like the first oh, episode sure. was like one of our favorite at the time PhD candidates at Wyoming. And we're like, do you remember when you first met us, Spencer? And it was just like, there was no point to that episode. Do you know we love like, you. <laughs> it's like, oh, dude, please tell us. We really want your attention. And it's just like, oh God, it's just so cringy <laughs> when you listen to those original episodes. And we tell folks all the time, like, yeah, sure. Listen to them, but know that it gets better. <laughs> yeah. Like listen to maybe episode 20 or something like, sure. you know, listen to the first Absolutely. one and then like move on maybe a, a, a mm -hmm. page or two. And then once we figure out Mojo. Yeah, like if you want to hear an episode that sounds like we're yelling down an elementary school hallway, absolutely. Episodes like one through five, those are for you. But then we got real microphones and sort of figured our stuff out. But yeah, one of the things is that as and we're not uh, as much of an interview based show as a life in ruins. We do have occasional guests on, but we are still learning how to be better interviewers. So it's it's been really cool to see how you guys have evolved as as interviewers and how kind of your technique has changed and, and you really like you've, you've found you hit your stride. It's really awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah. But, but yeah, so we started the show and really kind of depended on our own social networks to get it out there because getting it on like as a podcast, getting it onto the Apple podcasts app and stuff isn't actually that difficult. Sort of any dumb dumb with a microphone can do that, but yeah, so we, we got it out there and we started out with a list of like one of the first things that we did uh, as we were planning was to brainstorm topics. And so we ended up having an initial list of 50 or so topics that we just were like, these are things that sound cool. Like it, it was a mix of things that we were already knowledgeable about, things that interested us, news stories we had seen recently, things that we were super inter interested in, at, like as kids, recommendations from other archaeology friends, things like that. And so we had a list of episodes and we being still unemployed, uh, we had lots of time to produce those episodes. And so that is what we did. And it was a slow, kind of a slow burn, but it really started to take off. And then it especially took off after we joined the Archaeology Podcast Network, because there was already sort of a, a big old audience built into that. So what was that push to get you guys on the APN because you guys were solo and, and you guys are also, I believe, the only podcast on the APN that still edits their own show. So you're still doing that. I'm very, I, I have a, a little bit of a control issue, <laughs> but I really like, I mean, yes, editing is quite a bit of work, especially now that I do actually have a nine to five job, but I really like being the one that builds the story 
because at this point, Amber and I have been doing this for so long and we're so kind of in sync. And also we've known each other for more than 15 years now. And so we're so kind of accustomed to each other that I'm able to piece together the story and the flow of the episode the way that I know that we both kind of want it to go. And I am not sure that anyone else would be able to do that. That said, I have a lot of respect for the APN and all of the production stuff that happens there. I just am really reluctant to uh, relinquish editorial control. And that's more of a me problem. But the, the, I actually honestly don't remember where I first heard about the APN. It must have been like maybe someone listened to our show and said, hey, why aren't you on the Archaeology Podcast Network? But I do remember that I met Chris, Chris Webster at the what is he? He's just like the the producer, the the CEO of APN. I met him at the the conference, the one, the annual meeting of the what is it, Society for California Archaeology, because um, I had gone to promote the dirt, and that was kind of a fiasco on his own for other reasons. But I had gone to promote the dirt by myself because Amber at that time was living in West Virginia, and so. Yeah, so I had gone to to promote the dirt, and I guess it was just like in the exhibitors hall. I was walking around, and Chris was there promoting the APN, and so we got to talking. And he offered, you know, he said, "If you ever want to join the network, you know, here are the benefits." And he gave me a card, and I went and talked it over with Amber, and we decided that. It would be a good idea because for one thing, uh, again, there was already this this large audience built in, but then also it would mean that we would not have to host our own audio. And that was an aspect of the show that at the time, before we had a Patreon that supported the show, was pretty costly. We we hosted stuff on SoundCloud. And, and so like reducing that cost, having the... APN automatically push episodes out to all these platforms that we weren't necessarily on before and getting us out to a whole new audience of listeners were really big perks. But also we wanted to join the sort of the cast of, of podcasts on, on the APN felt like a good fit. Fair enough. Well, what are, do you have any favorite episodes that you guys have recorded? Cause how many episodes do you guys have now? We are currently on episode 189. Eight? Getting really close to 200. Either 189 or 88 just came out. Okay. I should know this, but <laughs> but yes. I ha- So I have favorite episodes for different reasons. There are episodes that I'm extremely proud of for sort of intellectual reasons or because of their content. And then there are episodes that I, I really like because they're funny and dumb. And so episode number 42 is always one that I recommend. It is about, well... It is inspired by the news story that came out right around the time that we wrote the episode about the exhumation of revolutionary American Revolutionary War soldier Casimir Pulaski, who was apparently a hero of the Revolutionary War. He was killed in battle and he may have been intersex. And so his remains were exhumed not for the reason of proving that he was or wasn't inter- intersex. It was it was something else. I think they wanted to move the remains or they were changing the monument where he was buried, something like that. Again, this was episode 42 and that's like 140 episodes ago. So, <laughs> But 
the media coverage, just like the regular media, not even like the archaeology journal coverage of this was not great. The way that that it was treated, the like the definition of intersex often wasn't used correctly, or it was like, was this man really a woman? Like that's not what intersex means. So we <laughs> didn't. I know we did an episode talking about that that issue, but then also kind of breaking down how um, archaeologists, like specifically osteologists, can tell the difference between biologically male and female and also like what intersex is and how that might present archaeologically and how it is not a foolproof science like sexing a skeleton is not foolproof there are indicators that show that an individual is more likely to have been male or female but like that's it's not a, a sure thing and also we can't know unless we are told through through material objects or through writing how an individual identifies like people's thoughts and feelings don't fossilize so we're left with the skeleton and that is only helpful up to a point so we use that episode to kind of dissect that issue no pun intended and kind of really bring to light some other kind of related stories that had to do with sexuality and, and uh, gender expression and identity and things like that. So that's, that's an episode that I'm, I'm very proud of for its content. An episode that I am, I just very fond of because it's so silly is our fish people episode. And that came about as, again, much like the dirt podcast itself came, came up as a joke that stuck. And uh, we were having Amber and I were having kind of a production meeting and we were brainstorming episode topics. And I was trying to remember the name of a site that was really interesting to me because of these particular statues that look like kind of anthropomorphized fish. And what I that was what I thought. What I said was, what about that site with the fish people? And obviously, Amber didn't know what I was talking about, because that's a really silly thing to say. And I tried to d- describe it. And then I looked up the site. It's it's. Dolny Vestanica, I think, in uh, Croatia, Serbia, Czech Republic. Oh, no. So she just wrote fish people in the editorial document and then was like, well, I guess we're doing it. And it ended up being a really fun episode. Like we really did talk about that site with the statues of just they. if you look them up, they just look like, I don't know, if you combined a man with like a haddock. It's just like these very mournful expressions, very like sort of fishy little mouths. And look, they're just like going, oh, no, very funny. But it ended up being a cool episode. And then my favorite part was I got sort of musically inspired. And at the end, just as a little bonus Easter egg, I made a track of just like a fully harmonized chorus, little little song about fish people, just as a little, little fun Easter egg for the listener. And so... I don't know if proud is the word I'd use for that one, but I'm just very, very fond of that episode because it was so much fun. And we've also, you know, we've done other episodes that that I've really enjoyed. One that I I liked was we did an episode on Ötzi, the Iceman, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, it took us a long time to get there because it's a subject that's sort of been endlessly covered. But it was it was a really fun episode to do nonetheless. And I think I think we still did a reasonably good job of keeping it archaeological, but also it's like the coldest of cold cases, the 5,000 year old, sorry, 7,000 year old murder. I so, love how in the episode title, cause it's like, Oh my God. It, it, again. Allows <laughs> yep. on top of we the, sure oh. did. 
It was great. So, and, and just for our audience, episode 117 is Fish People and episode 154 oh, is Oh thank My God. Thank you for doing the work for me. Of course. That's what I'm here for. You're here to relax and just chat. <laughs> oh, this is, I don't have to edit this one. This is so good. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. So, and with that, we'll be right back with Dr. Anna Goldfield. And we're going to hit up segment three right after these sweet, sweet messages by our producer and co-founder of the APN, Chris Webster. And we're back with episode 109. So for this last segment, we're going to be talking about a little bit of experimental archaeology. And if you've seen the Life and Ruins podcast Insta recently, you've seen we did a little bit of that. I know one of my favorite things about experimental archaeology is that it's really easy to get people like the public involved, like we do a lot of that with my intro to archaeology courses. We have like an ancient tech day where we have atlatl throwing. And in this recent experiment, we actually had one of my lifelong friends who flew up for my graduation. I've known him since third grade and he has no idea what I do, but we actually brought him out with us for the atlatl experiment. And he was like, this is your job. And I'm like, well, this is part of it. Just we get to throw <laughs> these spears at a high speed camera with different weights. And he's like just blown away by some of the like actual research that we do conduct. And we were trying to explain to them the whole purpose of it. And this wasn't just meaningless. And that's why we have all these people, including professional Neanderthal, Donnie Dust out there with us throwing darts, you know. Professional so, Neanderthal. Yep. Professional. I love Donnie Dust. I don't know if you follow him, but like his just professional caveman. I, guess I is should. He is. Yeah. He sounds like someone I should know. <sighs> Absolutely. He was on the show alone. Oh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Like not, oh, just, not. I'm th- sorry. I was thinking of naked and afraid. Very different. Okay. <laughs> okay. Never mind. Fair <laughs> same, same concept, but alone, more people have clothes. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> what a strange thing reality TV is. It, it is. So, um, what has been your experience with conducting experiments or archaeology? And, like, you know, off of that, you know, what do you see the intrinsic value of conducting such type of uh, research? So, I mean, I think experimental archaeology is incredibly valuable as long as the research methods are sound, which is, I know, uh, opening a whole other can of worms that that I don't really want to dive into just because it brings up a lot of debate and like techn- technical stuff. That's not really what I want to talk about. I, I, I really like experimental archaeology for a lot of reasons. One, it's, it's really fun. It's really a way to kind of try to connect to the experiences of the past. You're never going to really replicate someone's life in the past. But it's one thing to think about or talk about or statistically analyze the the act of flint napping, right? Or but it's another thing to see and hear someone creating a tool out of a hunk of rock and to sort of try to learn how to do it and and realize how much skill it really does take. You know, a lot of these things that that people did in the subsistence in the past, just living in the past with with no metal or and no toilets and no you know no mass produced items and no supermarkets to go show. You'd have to hunt and gather everything that you needed for your life, and we're so removed from that now. And so for me, experimental archaeology is just so interesting because it's a way to try to access that and to try to find ways to address questions about archaeological materials by by experiencing things. And so (laughs) this is, this is a research project that I'd never actually ended up doing. And frankly, I'm, I'm kind of grateful, but I was so interested in it. I really, I fell down such a research rabbit hole, but I got really, really interested in 
meat fermentation. So let me back up. My dissertation, again, was on Neanderthal subsistence and hunting and nutrition. So a lot of that was me compiling data and crunching a lot of numbers, which is just really funny because math was the thing I was abysmal at in school. But figuring out what Neanderthals' metabolic needs were just to sort of exist, what they needed in terms of calories and nutrients and all that, compared to Homo sapiens and to kind of plot out using mathematical models, which I collaborated with someone for, I didn't, I didn't do them, but to plot out these models of how different populations of humans, uh, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals would survive if placed in different circumstances, you know, in competition for resources. So jumping off of that, I started thinking about nutrition and I started thinking about the Neanderthals that were living in particularly resource poor areas or resource, uh, particularly challenging climates, let's say, because Neanderthals lived in in Europe for over 250,000 years. So there were a lot of different climate conditions. And obviously, it's a huge region. Europe is really big. And so there's lots of different landscapes. And in some of those landscapes, it was really cold for a lot of the time, especially during glacial periods, which would mean that that resources might have been pretty scarce. And so I was I was trying to think about Would these populations living, let's say, in winter during a glacial phase in the northernmost reaches of of non-glaciated Europe, what would their available nutrition have been like? And would they just have been starving all the time? And would they have been malnourished or would there have been a way for them to get some of the nutrients they needed from things that they they could access. And so I, I started researching around and I, I started to find that there was a lot of, not a lot, there was a specific little pocket of study about fermented meat and meat caching. So caching is is storing something, whether it's food or resources like tools or weapons, storing it for later. If you're not going to be there, but let's say it's a it's a hunting camp that you return to every year, but you don't want to carry all your stuff with you. You just want to bring the essentials from camp to camp. You cache things so that other animals or other people won't find your stuff. You come back to it later. And the hypothesis that Neanderthals and, and maybe even Homo sapiens, just hunter-gatherer groups, were caching meat in a way that would uh, block out oxygen and cause lactic acid fermentation was something that really kind of caught my interest, especially because of a 2017, I think he might have originally written it in 2015, but the version that I found was online, published online in 2017, I think. And I can give you the link for this, but it's a paper by John Speth called something like putrid meat and fish in the paleolithic it was like really like a really grabby title it's like oh cool gross and he talks about and john speth is a great writer of archaeology articles because he writes like a person like he writes not like an academic but he writes like a really really good lecturer in a, in a really good archaeology class who's like building this story for you and really getting you into the material but also it's it's incredibly well researched it's a really solid paper and so he talks about the need of the human body's need for micronutrients and macronutrients. And so that's like vitamins, minerals, carbohydrates, fat, protein, etc. And the different types of food and 
alter alterations of food resources that can provide those things. And he especially talked about the need for vitamin C and the need to avoid overdoing it on protein and vitamin A. So a couple of things can happen if you eat too much protein. So listen up, keto people. Uh, first of all, talk to a medical doctor before you start the keto diet. Thank you. Okay. If you eat too much protein, and this is like exclusive, almost exclusively protein, you can get sick and die because basically the body is not able to process all of that protein. It is lacking the fats and carbohydrates that it needs in moderation to to operate. And you can overload your, I think it's your liver and your kidneys with uric acid. Is that the one? Um, it's a condition called rabbit starvation. And it's named after fur trappers in sort of the 1800s in, in the Americas who would be trapping rabbits for their fur and eating the rabbits because they were only using the fur. And so they were eating super well. They were you know, full every night, but they were only eating rabbit and rabbit's sort of a very nothing meat. It's really lean protein. And so they were basically poisoning themselves. They were, they were starving to death while they were just full of food. And so ways to counteract that include eating a lot of fat along with your protein. So if you have a really high protein diet and there's really nothing you can do about it, you, you can compensate by eating a lot of fat. And that's the case with Arctic diets. So Arctic indigenous populations who eat a lot of, especially during the winter, will eat a lot of sea mammal meat and stuff. They will also consume the fat, the blubber of those animals in, in large quantities. So that's part of it. The other part is that fermentation does a lot of really cool things that are kind of akin to digestion. And one of the things that it does is it makes, specifically for meat, it makes meat more nutritionally available. So it breaks it down partially in the same way that cooking does, except that cooking destroys vitamins. Um, cooking breaks down vitamins and fermentation does not. So if you have fermented meat, you can kind of reclaim some of those vitamins and your meat is a little bit more nutritionally valuable than it would be if it was just raw or cooked like fresh meat. So I got really, really interested in this, in this idea of kind of alternative nutrition based on the deliberate alteration of meat and whether Neanderthals might've been doing this and whether it was just sort of a natural byproduct of the act of caching meat, like of storing it for later, or if this was kind of like a deliberate thing and and how would you be able to tell that in the archaeological record? So I had all these plans and I was designing all of this research to do like meat fermentation experiments. And in retrospect, that would have been so gross. It is research that actually I know, I happen to know is being done. So I really look forward to whenever, I know that someone's grad student was doing it a few years ago. And so I, I really hope that they continue to do that. So I don't have to, but I, I really, I would love to learn more about just sort of people doing different things to the resources they have to make them, to improve them in some way, to make them benefit them more. That, I mean, that was my sort of ill-advised side trip into a possible experiment. I was going to apply for an NSF grant. I, I had the grant like 90% written and then I got a teaching job. And so that sort of went by the wayside. And, and frankly, I think it turned out for the best because I, I do have a very sensitive stomach and I think it was probably ill-advised. 
but I, I still am very, very fond of experimental archaeology. And my partner, actually, her, uh, most of her research is based on experimental archaeology, which is why we have a, a freezer full of cow bones and a, and a shed full of deer bones and a, and a butcher's bone saw. So I, I haven't escaped it completely. But yeah, she studies Neanderthal bone tools and so works with bone and bone surfaces and tries to evaluate them microscopically. But so I just, for any time period in any place, I think there's so much to be done with experimental. Like I love YouTube videos that show like, oh, we're trying to as authentically as possible build this Iron Age style house using only the types of tools that they would have used. Like I love projects like that. I love when people just really go all in and like, we're wearing hides and we've tied elk teeth to them. And now we're going to dance for hours to see if there's different wear on the teeth from being you know, strung together. I, I love things like that. And so what I would love to see, because I think this is such a cool tool for engagement, is to, to see this stuff happening, to see people trying this stuff out, often with sort of you know, failure as a consequence, because we don't necessarily know how, how everything would have worked in the past. There's a lot of missing pieces. And so trying to fill in those pieces can often be illuminating or comical or frustrating or sort of terrible. So I, I would love to see, uh, this is my sort of semi-serious pitch for a TV show that I want to see, or like a YouTube show that I want to see. Do you remember the show Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I want that, but for archaeology. So like a non-expert, it could be an archaeologist, but just like a non-expert in, you know, obviously it's not someone who knows every time period everywhere, but a host who talks to expert experimenters in a particular, who are looking at particular questions about a time or place, like an Iron Age house, whatever, and tries to do the things. So like is guided through the process. A, so people can see how experimental archaeology is done and how how the research methods are are built up and how good research is conducted. Because not all experimental archaeology is good research. Do need to have, you know, you, you need to account for variables and you need to have a solid plan. But I, I, I want to see the research methods presented, but I also just want to see a non-expert trying to do the things that people in the past did every day because I want to show how skilled people were in the past. A lot of times because technology in the past is certainly not as advanced as it, as it is today, but that doesn't mean that people weren't skilled. It doesn't mean that people didn't know how to do really amazing things. And so I want to show these experts, you know, creating adhesive out of birch bark and using it to have to point onto a, an arrowhead. I want to see someone, you know, building an atlatl. I want to see someone tanning a hide, you know, things, things that would have been pretty normal, commonplace activities a hundred, 200, a thousand, a zillion years ago. I, I want to see the expert do it. I want to see the, the novice try to do it. And I want the context of what, what it would be like for the lives of the people in the past and, and how it sort of compares to our experience today. I think that would be a really, really fun show to watch. There are not enough hours in the day. Otherwise, I would I would pitch it and make it myself. But maybe in the future. But I think 
uh, the Pawnee Nation Tippo is doing some experimental archaeology or ethnography right now because in uh, rock art and ledger art, Pawnees are usually mm. depicted wearing black moccasins. And okay. we're trying to figure out how you do that. Like, how do you get How you dye them? Like, or you... How do you dye them black? Like, what mm. do you use to dye them black? So he's been doing some things that we've been texting oh, back that's and so forth interesting. he's figured it out yet. And I think it leads to something to do with walnuts. I was, I was going to ask if it was walnut. So that's making that's, me sound like I totally am lying, but I, I swear. That's, that's while, the like, new one he's doing, yeah. Because he's tried a couple things and it's just yeah. not, it hasn't been, it, they make them gray, not black. So mm, that's unpleasant. next one is because, but though, you know, you start crushing walnut shells and that stuff's just everywhere. No, it's, it, you, your hands are like splotchy for a week. There's a, <laughs> so remember when I did research in the South of France, because I'm so fancy, uh, there is a drink there uh, called Van de Noir that's very popular in that region because that region is famous for its walnuts. And so you basically take green, well, they're black walnuts, but they are green because they're not ripe yet. You take green walnuts and sort of let them steep in a, a combination of, of red wine and brandy and spices for a couple months. And it sort of mellows into this really, really delicious sort of magical potion but yeah so we so we harvested some green walnuts and cut them up and just like i forgot to wash my hands soon enough after doing that and then like all of a sudden the dye like it oxidates it oxidizes and and then just like oh god no so yeah i was i was uh stained but i bet i bet i hope walnut works that's interesting yeah i'd like a nice pair of like black casual moccasins those would be pretty sweet yeah it's been a pleasure oh, talking to you. Like, this has been so much fun. Oh, likewise. I've had a blast. Excellent. So before we end the show, Anna, what are a couple sources that you would recommend for anyone interested in zooarchaeology, podcasting, or experimental archaeology? Oh, boy. Um, well, for podcasting, it's such a broad thing. The nuts and bolts of podcasting, if you want to know specifically how Amber and I make the dirt, both sort of our philosophy behind the show and, and the actual steps and software and, and, and hardware that we use. We did a, I'll, I'll dig up the link for, for this. We did a, a workshop for the Oklahoma Public Archaeology Network that was recorded and I believe is on their YouTube channel, just exactly about that. But otherwise, there are tons of tutorials online for how to set up a basic recording setup. It's one of the great things about podcasting as a medium for for creating stuff is that it's it's a pretty low cost entry point and it's a reasonably shallow learning. I mean, it, it, I, I'm sure it'll depend on who's doing the learning, but it's it's a pretty shallow learning curve. There are even a lot of apps now that uh, are just sort of plug and play. So, in terms of podcasting and learning how to do it, I would say just listen to a lot of your favorite podcasts and and emulate the things that they do, the things that you like about them, the, th the way that they structure their show. If, if it seems to work for them, try it out, see if it works for you, or, you know, eventually you're, you'll find your own voice. But for zooarchaeology, I would like to shamelessly plug an episode of The Dirt, which is the Funna with Fauna episode. Uh, we have fun with our titles. Uh, but that is episode 59 of the podcast and we break down what zooarchaeology is and talk about a few case studies and and sort of what those show about the lives of people through the lens of the animals that they interacted with so that's a fun one i mentioned flint dibble before but he's phenomenal on twitter like he creates a lot of twitter threads not only breaking down concepts of zooarchaeology and 
how you can learn about the past through it, but also just a lot of, he debunks a lot of pseudoscience and pseudo-archaeology on there. He also has a YouTube channel where he's posted several of his lectures. So if you want to get a little bit deeper into a little bit more than just basic introductory Zoark, I would say start there. And then if you want to get even deeper, I can recommend two actual textbooks. One is The Archaeology of Animal Bones by Terry O'Connor, which is is pretty approachable. It is definitely an academic book, but it's it's written in a pretty straightforward and accessible way. And then An Introduction to Zooarchaeology by Diane Gifford Gonzalez. It does exactly what it says on the tin. It's an introduction to Zoark. But yeah. Excellent. And where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, if you don't want to go on social media, you can just go to thedirtpod.com because all of our socials feed right to the webpage. But if you do want to join the dumpster fire that is Twitter, you can find me at Anna Goldfield, just just my name, and you can find the dirt at Dirt Podcast. And then you could also follow me on Instagram, me specifically, if you mostly want pictures of food and cats. But uh, I'm at Puppy Digs, and the dirt is at the Dirt Pod on Insta. Excellent. And uh, if given the chance, would you still choose to live a life in ruins? Oh, yeah. I, I live a life pre-ruins. I'm living a life in caves, baby. Excellent. That's the, Oh, perfect. I love that. Pre-ruins. First one. All right. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Dr. Anna Goldfield. You can find her on Twitter at, at Anna Goldfield and, of course, The Dirt at Dirt Podcast, as well as Instagram at Puppy Digs and at The Dirt Pod. Please be sure to rate uh, the podcast and provide us with any feedback on whichever podcasting platform you're using to listen to our show. And as always, if you're listening to this episode on the All Shows feed, please go find the Life Ruins podcast and subscribe to us there and follow us and listen to our podcast on our page to help us grow our channel and help us eventually take over the dirt podcast and with that i believe in you (laughs) and with that we are out thanks for listening to a life in ruins podcast you can follow us on instagram and facebook at a life in ruins podcast and you can also email us at a life in ruins podcast at gmail.com and remember make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.